Good morning once again. At this point, I'll say I'm not surprised, I don't mean that in a bad way, I'm not surprised when I hear the songs and the prayers and the scripture readings all come together um, in like doctrine for us. Um, at this point, I would say I rather expect it um, because our God is faithful. Amen. Um, if you would, once more, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask again that you be with us now as we pour through your word, as we spend a little time attempting to understand what you have revealed to us. Um, Father, the, the doctrines that we love and hold dear, adoption and justification, uh, the gospel that Christ came and lived a perfect life and, and offered his body a perfect sacrifice to save sinners. We have heard it and sang it this morning already. Thank goodness. Praise the Lord. Um, and I ask that you be with us now. Um, that we do gain other understanding um, for your glory's sake. Amen. I'll tell you, we're going to be in Romans 7. I should mention that um, if you'd like to turn there. But we have a little bit of time before I start working through the scriptures. In October of 2021, I preached a sermon on Romans 6. That passage is about being dead to sin about who the believer is, about how sin creates a separation in our relationship with God, and warnings uh, for the end of those things is death, Romans 6, 21 tells us. I think most of us are familiar with the man in Romans 7, um, the statement from verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I wanted to have a better understanding of what the scripture is telling me, is telling us about this apparent difficulty that we all have in common with the Apostle Paul. This inability to not sin. And that, that doesn't hit the ears like very smooth. It's not eloquent. So I, I restated this, this inability to not sin. We are unable to not sin. We are not able not to sin. We sin because we are sinners. First John tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So in one sense, it seems that Paul is pouring out his emotions about the state of his flesh and the state of his soul. Even though he is writing this letter to the Romans, unpacking the character of God, unlocking truths about the Old Testament so that others may understand the gospel, here in this section, 
these things come across more as a prayer of confession. Perhaps being lost in his writings and reflecting on the strictness of the law and the goodness of Christ under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul reveals to us an inner turmoil that he struggled with, the conflict of the two natures of believers, simultaneously justified and sinful, at the same time righteous and yet a sinner. So again, we can say that we have this in common with Paul, this struggle with the sinful state of our flesh. But does Paul wallow in that state? When we struggle, when we fail, do we wallow in that state? Christian, there is hope, and Paul points us to that hope. But now let's start to dig into the text and take a deeper look at the truth Paul is developing for us so, so that we can not only relate to his conflict, but also to his hope. In preparation for the sermon this week, I came across a little booklet called The Christian in Romans 7 by A.W. Pink. I found it interesting that Pink points out a parallel of Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. I think that understanding this parallel will help us move through the text today. So, in the first part of Romans 6, we see that Paul deals with the believer's standing in verses 1 through 11. I believe it can be summarized well in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In the second part of Romans 6, verses 11 through 23, Paul deals with the believer's state. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The apostle tells us that we were dead to sin, that we have been set free from sin. Paul here is describing to us the effects this truth should have on a believer's walk. So again, we saw the believer standing and the believer's state. And likewise, in chapter 7, chapter 7 can be broken down in this way, verses 1 through 6, dealing with the believer's standing, the believer's identification with Christ being viewed as dead to the law, as we will see in verse 4. And then in the second part of chapter 7, Paul deals with the believer's state, the actual experiences of the Christian in this world. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out, Romans 7, 18. So after Pete points out these parallels, these, these similar things, um, he points out the difference. The second part of Romans 6, revealing what our state ought to be, whereas the second part of Romans 7, showing what our state actually is. So in our first verse of chapter 7, we are faced with, or do you not know, brothers? <laughs> Commentaries point out that this verse is a continuation of the thought pen in chapter 6, verse 14. That would be, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So just as a side note, I'll mention that after, when Paul had gotten to that point, he questions what then 
are we to sin because we are not under the law, but of grace? And then he spends the remainder of chapter 6 answering that question. You know, again, chapter 6, verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. In this first part of chapter 7, remember we are dealing with the believer standing as dead to the law. Verses 1 through 3 provide us an illustration of marriage or of the law of marriage. And verses 4 through 6 give us an application of this principle. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. These verses 1 through 6, I want us to consider some points here. We see that marriage is a union that ceases to exist as it pertains to the law upon the death of the husband. In the illustration, verses 1 through 3, someone else has died. The wife's husband has died, and she has become free. But in the application, in verse 4, it reads, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died. In the application, it reads, you have died. Now, this doesn't make sense in using the husband passing and then you passing until we start to dig a little bit further. Because... We can see that the, the next part of the verse reads, through the body of Christ. I'm flipping back and forth between chapter 6 and chapter 7. So in chapter 6, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So through the body of Christ, you have died. And verse 4 says, to the law. So that you may belong to another. Just like the wife who has lost her husband. By nature, you were in union, in bondage with Adam. You were under the law. You were in bondage to sin. In a death like his, as we see in a death like Christ, Romans 6, 5, you are now in union with Christ, dead to the law, having been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Romans 6, 18 tells us. And why? The verse continues, in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
That's a, a throwback to uh, Romans 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards of righteousness. That means you were in bondage to sin and not in bondage to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? That was not the fruit that you wanted. But now we may bear fruit for God. Death has ended an obligation to marriage, and death has ended an obligation to the law. Romans 6.4 read, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of, Father, of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And verse 7, 4 reads, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Do you see the resurrection language in these two verses? This newness of life, being raised from the dead. These things cannot be done on our own. It is God who works and wills. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He grants new life. Dead to the law in the sense that we do not have to fulfill every letter perfectly in order to obtain salvation. Dead to the law in the sense that Christ has fulfilled it. And the terrors of the punishment due to those who do not keep the law have also been laid upon him. Upon his head, upon his back, and at the cross. Dead to the law in the sense that it no longer threatens condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hendrickson writes, the result of all this is that we now serve God in newness of the spirit. No longer in oldness of the letter. That is the legal code. <clears throat> there used to be a time when we thought that by strict obedience to the external code, the Mosaic written law, as interpreted by tradition, we could be saved. But now, having been set at liberty, having been set free, we serve in newness of the Spirit. Romans 7, 6 read, But now that we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Verse 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? Has Paul led us to believe that the law is wrong? That it is sinful? Verse 7, 5 reads, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Chapter 5, verse 20 reads, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Paul anticipates what some may misinterpret, that the law is sin. But this question is answered immediately by no means. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, Romans 3, 19 and 20, and also Romans 3, uh, verse 31. Do we, then, <clears throat> do we then overthrow the law by this faith? 
by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And this section of Romans 7 helps explain the meaning of what was revealed to us in chapter 3, in those verses we just read, that the law is indeed good as it exposes our sinfulness and points us to Christ. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul uses the 10th commandment here to make his point. The 10th commandment being, you shall not covet. Again from Hendrickson, it is not surprising that it was especially this 10th commandment that stopped Paul in his tracks. The other commandments, superficially interpreted, forbid transgressions that are or seem to be of a more or less external character. What he's saying is some of these other commandments we can fake. Especially those at the second table, but the 10th commandment strikes directly at the very root of sin, namely man's sinful heart, his evil desire. For example, we can look at the parable of the rich young ruler. This man came to Christ and asked what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Christ gave him the commandments. Christ gave him the law. And the young man said, well, I've done all that. What, what else must I do to be saved? And Christ understood that this man was not truly aware of what it meant to hold to and uphold the law. He must be perfect. And so Christ told him to go and sell your things and come and follow me. Expounding on that 10th commandment, do not covet. And the rich young ruler didn't see it. He didn't get it. He loved his things and he wasn't willing to do that. He was guilty of covetousness. The law would expose that when the spirit becomes effectual to him. But in this parable, he walked away sad. When Christ was asked what a man must do to inherit eternal life, Christ gave that man the law to expose his sin so that he may see his need of a savior. Verse 10 here reads, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Ezekiel 20:11 I gave them my statutes and made them <clears throat> and made known to them my rules 
by which if a person does them, he shall live. And later in Romans 12, Paul writes, excuse me, in Romans 10, chapter 5, or I'm going to say that right here in a minute, in Romans chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. The commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, season, and opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. A right understanding of the law of God comes with and from having been given a new heart. The right understanding is when we really start to see the depths of our wickedness. No more excuses about how small we may view our sins. How we believe God has more important things to worry about. Knowing that any sin, all sin, is in violation of God's holy law and worthy of eternal punishment is where the right understanding of the law leads us. Sin deceives, the verse says. Sin deceives us into thinking that we are better than we are. Sin deceives us into thinking we could keep the law. Sin deceives us in making, in making us think we could earn our way to heaven by our own good works. It is not the law that is sin, as was asked in verse 7. Verse 12 reads, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. God uses His good law to reveal to us our sinfulness, and it points to Christ as our Savior, the one who can keep, has kept the law, and done so for us. Matthew Henry states, As that which is straight discovers that which is crooked, As the looking glass shows us our natural face with all its spots and deformities. So there is no way of coming to that knowledge of sin which is necessary to repentance and consequently to peace and pardon, but by comparing our hearts and lives with the law. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. It is not the commandment operating by itself that brings death. It is the transgression of the commandment that brings death. Sin brings death, and the law reveals it. While we are in Adam, before regeneration, when we do not yet have a proper understanding of God's law, it condemns us. Even if we aren't aware of that condemnation, it is impossible to keep that law, and therefore that law is a terror. It promises punishment, even worse, because we feel that our sins are not enough to convict us we heap even more transgressions, more charges against our case, all of which God will not excuse and will hold us guilty for. But in Christ, we see the law rightly, and in turn the law reveals our sins to us rightly, and we see more gloriously His life and His work and His sacrifice, freeing us from the bondage of sin and making us dead to the law. We can now see how good God's law truly is. 
and how we may grow in godly character by growing in obedience to God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. The law is spiritual. We've already read in verse 12 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and the law is a reflection of the character of God. And against that standard, Paul here, Paul here tells us he is of the flesh, sold under sin, so that by comparison to the goodness, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable holiness of God, Paul tells us that he understands his sinful human nature. Paul here is beginning to unpack the conflict of the two natures of believers. Simultaneously justified and sinful. At the same time righteous and a sinner. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. From the Reformation Study Bible, um, Paul is actually describing a profound conflict that every Christian finds inherent in his life in Christ. Christ dwells in him, yet sin also dwells in him. Perfect conformity to God's will is at present out of his reach. Salvation has already and not yet dimensions. We are already liberated from the power of sin, but we are not yet free from the presence of sin. Christ dwells in him, yet sin also dwells in him. And that is the same for us. A child of God longs to be free from sin. A child of God reflects on the things they have done wrong and feel hurt and shame for how they have failed their heavenly father. The one who gave his own son for our redemption. A child of God knows that something better waits for us. We have hope 
and trust in a covenant-keeping God who is truth itself and cannot lie. From Philippians chapter 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Verse 24 reads, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Again from the booklet by A.W. Pink, the man who does not utterly, <clears throat> the man who does not utter this cry daily is either so out of communion with Christ or so ignorant of the teaching of Scripture or so deceived about his actual condition that he knows not the corruptions of his own heart and the abject failure of his own life. Where there is no sense of utter unworthiness, where there is no mourning over the total depravity of our nature, where there is no sorrowing over our lack of conformity to Christ, where there is no groaning over being brought into captivity to sin, in short, where there is no crying, O wretched man that I am, it is greatly to be feared that there is no fellowship with Christ at all. Augustus Toplady, author of uh, Rock of Ages, wrote in his private diary under December 31st, 1767, that's New Year's Eve. Upon a review of the past year, I desire to confess that my unfaithfulness has been exceeding great. My sins still greater, God's mercies greater than both. And again, my shortcomings and my misdoings, my unbelief and want of love, would sink me into the lowest hell. Was not Jesus my righteousness and my redeemer? Verse 25 reads, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So the question asked in verse 24 is, Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he doesn't say it out of despair because he has the answer in verse 25. The answer here is given, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is the victor over the grave, over sin and death. Because you belong to Christ, you have been united with him in a death like his. You are dead to sin, chapter 6, and dead to the law, chapter 7. The verse goes on to say, so then I serve I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Paul wants to obey the law of God. With our mind, we can study, we can learn, we can gain understanding of the word of God. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In our minds, we can decide that we want to be obedient to God, to heed the warnings of scripture, to not let our prayer life grow cold by neglecting it, to plead with the Holy Spirit for grace and strength in these activities, to not forsake the gathered body, the preached word, the ordinary means of grace, to guard against backsliding. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians to take every thought captive to obey Christ. All this is done with the mind. And Paul has said, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Paul serves the law of God with his inward man, his renewed self, as John Gill puts it. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. With this second half of the verse, Paul simply lays down the fact that these two natures will continue to exist in conflict within the believer. The new nature serves the law of God. The old nature serves the law of sin. Both righteous and a sinner at the same time while in this world. But he has already shown us that his hope, his deliverer, to whom he has already given thanks here in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So to restate what was said in the beginning about the parallel themes of Romans 6 and 7, we have the believer standing in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Believers are dead to sin. And we have the believer state in the remainder of that chapter, the effects of this truth should have on a believer's walk dealing with how Christians ought to live in this world. In Romans 7, the believer standing is that believers are dead to the law. And in verses 7 through 25, the believer state experiences of the Christian in this world, dealing with the experiences that Christians will actually have while we remain here. And I couldn't just stay in my chapter because Romans 8.1 reads, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the opposite here is true for the unbeliever. For those who are not united to Christ, there remains a law of sin, which the fruit of is death. There remains a condemnation that comes with being under the curse of the law. You are not free from it. You are bound to it and will ultimately be held accountable to it and judged by it. But Christ offers freedom for sinners. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Something I'll add is that we all have bad days. Um, maybe work was tough. Someone said the wrong thing. Someone drove the way I don't think they should drive in front of me on the highway. You know, usually when we have these bad days, it's not so much what happens to us. It's more of how we reacted to it. We're offended by something because it affected our pride. And then we go and we look for comfort in venting about it. We take it out on someone else. We treat the ones we love poorly because we're in a bad mood or we shut down. But we need to remember that we all have offended God.
The law reveals what is right and wrong to us when we compare ourselves to the law. We shouldn't forget this comparison when we start to compare other people to ourselves. And the good news is you can ask forgiveness. You can repent. You can go to him. See, that's the thing. When we vent, when we take it out on somebody else, what did Paul do here in Romans 7? He cried out to his Lord and Savior, O wretched man that I am. And he remembered what his Savior had done for him. Thanks be to God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for what you have done to us. And at the same time, we ask, Father, make us thankful for what you have done for us. Make us grateful that we can see that the state that we are currently in, confined to sinful bodies in a sinful world, is not where we will stay. And let us remember that there is hope for those who do not know that yet. That your gospel will come to them, that your spirit will apply that truth to their heart and to their mind. That we consider that the Apostle Paul struggled with the things of this world and yet he opened his heart to God in prayer in asking for supplication and that should be the example for us let us not vent and kick back about how we have been offended let us remember that we have been the offender and let us come to you in prayer let us ask for grace and mercy to live here to be obedient to your will as we have only been able only been able been made able to do because of what Christ has done in Jesus name we pray amen